Thanks for listening to the High Street Young Adults Podcast. For more information and how to get connected, check out highstreet.org slash youngadults. Good evening. Welcome to Young Adults. My name is Jared, and I am one of the pastors here at High Street. And I just want to welcome you, say that I'm glad that you're here. Hey, uh, tonight we're starting a two-week series, and tonight we're talking about not how to guard your heart. That's the wrong one. God's design for sex. Uh, We posted on social media a couple days ago, and it's one of those things that, like, sex is one of those words in church where, like, you say it, do you not say it? Is that person saying something bad? Like, he's going to go to H-E double hockey sticks if he says that? Like, you don't say that in church. It's not what you do. But it's one of those hot-button issues that everybody's like, what what happens? What do you get to talk about with sex in church? Because I think, if we're honest, everybody wants to have good relationships. Everybody wants to be in some point in time in a good relationship where that's a part of it, right? Uh, Amen, right? Somebody? Um, They they want that for themselves. We probably all want that in some form or fashion. uh, That I don't know there's many people that would probably disagree with that, but what happens is is that there's so many different influences, there's so many different directions that we're being pulled in culture and and with some of the things that church has done kind of in the past that kind of make things, I think, a little bit confusing, uh, that where do we go from here? This is such a sliding scale. It's such a confusing metric. How, how do you know you're doing it right? How do you know that you're being pure in your thoughts? How do you know that you're treating, treating your significant other the best way that you can? Uh, th- there's so much that happens in this avenue. Uh, th- this was honestly one of those messages that like when Logan and Coco and I were talking about like, hey, what should we talk about? This is an exciting thing to talk about, but there's about a thousand different directions that you can take this subject, right? Like you can talk about good dating advice. You can talk about Song of Solomon. If you've never read it, it's an awesome book. And there's a book that I'd suggest to you all called Mingling of Souls by Matt Chandler that basically works like a commentary through Song of Solomon that I'd suggest it to anyone who's interested at all in being in a relationship. Me and my wife read that six months or 12 months into marriage, and we were like, man, these are things I wish I would have known a year ago, two years ago. Um, But it's such a, it's such a, I mean, you could talk about so many different things um, that last night even, like, I, I'm, I'm sitting there with Tyler, I just got home, and I was like, man, there, there's just, this is what I'm thinking, this is what we could do, and she, she gave me some ideas, and it was one of those where I was like, yeah, that's probably what I need to do with this message, and I was like, I'm just going to take a drive, kind of clear my head and, and drive, that's what I like to do when you, when you talk in the car and you drive. Uh, no, nobody really thinks anything of it because they're like, oh, he's probably got some kind of Bluetooth on. No, I'm just talking to myself, praying out loud, stuff like that. Um, but I'm doing that and I'm driving. I drove up and down National and, and I remember I, I was driving south on National and I was thinking like, I'll probably go home. And, and I passed Missouri State in those gates that are right there at Bear Boulevard and I was like, I'm just going to turn in. And when I pulled into Missouri State, these, these memories just started kind of flooding through of when I was at Missouri State and I would meet some guys that, they had a certain set of agendas, right? Their agenda was, I want to party and have a good time, and I want to have sex. Like, and they would tell you. Like, there was no hidden agenda. That was what they were there to do. And they would do just about anything to do it. And in their group of friends, there were girls that would jump in the middle of it and sleep with any of them in about a thousand different combinations. And it was like one of those where I'm like, man, what is going on here? And then there were people that would get made fun of for being in a long-term relationship. It's like, man, that sounds like the most boring thing in the world. You're so... There were just so many things that came in with relationships that 
You have advice that you're doing it wrong if you do it this way. You have advice that you're too stuck up if you do it this way. That I grew up in church and you didn't talk about sex. You heard, hey, it's a gift from God. You enjoy it when you're married. And that's all you got to hear. That was it. You didn't get to hear anything about that word, about that activity, about what that looked like. It's a gift, but I don't know what that means. I don't know what the Bible has to say about it. And I think when we look at how culture kind of stretches it, and I think we have to remember that we have an enemy. It says in John 10.10 that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's going to warp something that God created to be a good gift so that you go, man, this brings me pain. This brings me heartache. This brings me confusion. But God meant for us to have life and life abundantly. Now that does not exclude relationships. Life and life abundantly does not exclude your sex life. It doesn't. There's a time and a place for it. And I think when culture starts to stretch that and and to kind of belittle what it is that God has to say about it, we start to see a lot of different things. That pornography, probably one of the biggest issues in our culture right now, that you... I've talked to enough guys to know that, man, I'm going to cut pornography. Okay, but I'm just still going to keep my Netflix account, and and I I can get by with that. And you're using it for the same purposes. You've got people that are trying to figure out, okay, is it okay if I live with someone before I get married? I need to make sure that we're sexually compatible. I need to make sure that we can cohabitate before we we actually make it, because it's a big commitment. And I watched my parents get a divorce, and that was ugly, and I don't ever want to be a part of that. So we're going to cohabitate. We're going to live together before we get married just to make sure everything's on the up and up. You have so many different combinations of what's going on in people's life, and it ends up in so much pain. It ends up in so much difficulty. That we live in a culture that says, hey, whatever you think about sex, it's up to you. I'm not going to, I'm not going to step on that. Whatever, if you want to have it before you're married, that's great. If you don't, it's kind of weird, but that's up to you. We live in a culture that just kind of says, hey, whatever it means to you, that's fine. But then we also live in a culture that the other end of that spectrum says, hey, a little too drunk is too drunk to have sex. Can't do that. That there's a line in our culture that I don't think our culture knows where it lands. When is it okay? When is it fine? How committed is a committed relationship enough to go ahead and have sex with your significant other? It's a confusing standard. It's something that I don't think anyone is the expert on. That you get to decide. It's up to you. That our culture has taken what God had planned and it stretched it. And it tweaked it. And it made it fit for whatever works for you. But I think we all know that doesn't work. It doesn't last very long. That there's pain associated with it. When, when we bring up this, this topic, we posted on Instagram about it a, co- a week or so ago. And I think that we had our team start praying for this now. I've been praying for you because whenever we bring up God's design for sex, it probably brought up some shame. It probably brought up some regret. It probably brought up something that maybe happened to you that was not your choice. It brought up a relationship that you wish never would have happened. It brings up some things in people. It brings up, man, I wish I would have never gone to that website. I wish I would have never gone to that party. I wish I would have never had that drink. I wish I would have never met that girl. And if you're like me, your back gets a little tight. And your mouth starts to lose a little bit of saliva. Starts to dry out a little bit. And and before we even get into what we're talking about tonight, I just want you to know 
not, not anything that I have to say. I want you to see in God's word what God's heart is for you after you have sexual shame, after you have sexual regret. In Psalm 51, if you've never read it before, it's an incredible piece of scripture that's really David's diary, pouring his heart out to God after he's sinned. He's a man with a wife, and, and he goes up on his rooftop, a place that he probably shouldn't have been, and he sees a woman bathing on her rooftop, which was pretty common in those days. So the chances were David was going up there to see something that he shouldn't have looked at in the first place. He goes up there, and he sees her, and he sends a servant and says, hey, I want to know who that is, and he sleeps with her. He's the king. Who wouldn't have done that? He sleeps with her. She gets pregnant and he says oh man there's a war going on her husband is away at war what am I going to do I'll bring him home he comes home and he says hey you know what out of respect for my comrades I'm going to sleep on the doorstep and I'm not going to have sex with my wife and David's like well what do I do now so he tells the commander of that army hey when you go up go start start engaging in battle but as soon as they start to engage everybody pull back except for her husband so his Sexual appetite has led to him going a place he wasn't supposed to go, sleeping with another man's wife, getting her pregnant, and killing someone. Huge cover-up story. I mean, just an ugly, ugly thing. And there's this moment there that someone comes to him and says, hey, you, you did something wrong and confronts him about it. But what's cool about this is that we see later on in the Bible, David is called a man after God's own heart after all of this mess. Can I just tell you that if you have a past that you are not proud of, God still loves you. It does not change the way that he views you. He does not see you as, well, you're second tier now. Oh, you've done that? Okay, well, I've got a spot for you. It's behind everybody else. That's not what God does. If you have a past that you are not proud of, God does not see you as belittled. He does not see you as second tier. God loves you. I'm going to read Psalm 51 to you. It's seriously so good. It's one of my favorite pieces of scripture. Psalm 51. This is David asking God for a clean heart. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Steadfast means it's not stopping. You can't knock it out. You can't push it off track. It's a train on tracks. It's not going to go anywhere. It's steadfast. You can do something. You can try to push it off, but it's not going anywhere. There's nothing that you could have done. There's nothing that you could have engaged in this morning, last night, on your way here, last semester, this summer, that God would go, okay, I'm pulling back my love. You don't deserve it. No, no, no. God has steadfast love for you. God loves you. In verse 2 he says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. God forgives you. There's not a sin, there's not a thing that you could have done that God will not forgive you. Will you let that sink in? You can be forgiven by God. And then in verse 4 he says, and against you and you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. You know what I appreciate about David is that he understood that he sinned against a lot of people. That if a young man who's away at war, who has a, a wife who is in pregnancy age, in those ages, he was probably a young man who had a, a decent sized family. And David made sure that he died in war. David had a wife of his own and he went out and found another woman and got her pregnant. 
There's some pain involved in the things that David's doing, but he understands that his sin against other people is secondary to his sin against God. That's who we need forgiveness from. That's why the story of Jesus is so incredible. That he saw us in our pain and our difficulty, and he said, I will die for you. And this wasn't just someone that said, hey, I'll sacrifice a little bit. I'll give you a give up. No, no, no. This was God himself. The person who we sinned against came down to save us. That's why it's so important. Flip forward to verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in, my in, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. That God will also grow you. He'll heal you. God does not look at you and say, well, you've you've had some sexual sin in your past. Okay, you get second tier relationships. You don't get good relationships because you sin. He doesn't say that. That that term, you purge me with hyssop, what he's talking about, I I remember reading that and thinking, oh, it's like soap. No, no, the idea there was with leprosy. They had this, this sickness that would happen where it was really contagious. If you had leprosy and you walked down the street, you had to yell out unclean so that nobody would stay on the same side of the street and would go around you. And they basically had to quarantine. Like if we understand one thing from the Old Testament right now, it's that quarantine life, right? But they would quarantine these people outside of town and they would, they would the priests who were, were probably some people who were trusted by everyone in the community would go in and purge their house with hyssop. It was like this lime that would make sure and kill every amount of that disease. And they would purge that house with hyssop and then the priest would come out and declare the house inhabitable again. God will declare you inhabitable again. You are not second tier because you have a past. That God will make you new. He will redeem something that is broken. He will redeem something that, that the world would say, uh, you're that guy. You're that girl. You're that person who would never. You're that girl who always. God says, hey, I'll take them. I'll redeem that. I'll make it worth something good. That's what God does. He steps in and makes us inhabitable again. And lastly, in verse 13, he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways. He gives us a new heart. He makes us clean. He forgives us. He loves us. And then David says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go and I'm going to find some people that look like me, that sound like me, that have the same mistakes that I have and say, look at what God is willing to do. That's what our God does. So before we even start tonight, I don't want there to be an elephant in the room. I don't want you to feel like, oh man, everybody's looking at me and snickering and sneering and hey, that's the guy. No, 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 no. We're all in the same boat. Broken people forgiven by Christ. If you have turned your life to Christ, if you've repented, if you live in him, this is you. It might not be sexual sin, it might be something else. But we're all broken, we all need Jesus. That this is Christ, this is Jesus, this is what he does for us. That God has a plan for relationships. God has a plan for sex. And it is not just a good plan, it is not a better plan than anything else, it is the best plan. It's good. John 10.10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life and life abundantly. There's no clause after that. There's nothing that says, hey, excluding your sexual 
No, God created sex. It's a good thing. I got married six years ago, and let me tell you, it's a good thing. I've got three kids. At three kids in three and a half years, you get a lot of old folks at church that go, you know what causes that? Yeah, I do. And it's awesome. I enjoy it. It's great. It's a good thing. That God has a good plan for sex for you. That tonight we're going to talk about Ephesians 5. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open that up and look at it. Ephesians 5. And really, what I want to look at is the covering that God gives for sex. We're not talking about, hey, this is what you can do, this is what you can't do. I'm not going to put a, a line on the screen and put per- certain things about this is what's okay, this is what not, is not okay. I want to paint for you the picture of what God designed for sex. Because it's a good thing, but it's meant to happen in a certain space. And when it happens outside of that space, there's pain, there's death, destruction, theft. It's not what God wants for you. So we're going to look at Ephesians 5, and it starts in verse 21. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's a picture here that he's getting ready to paint, and he's going to make this kind of linear path of like marriage and this other thing, and it won't be a secret for very long what it is. But the whole thing, what's foundational and primary is that word, reverence for Christ. That if you're here and you do, you'd say, I don't have, that doesn't make any sense. I just, you get a free pass. You just get to listen. You can critique me. You can make fun of what I, you can do whatever you want. But if you have a reverence for Christ, then your life, as it comes to relationships, as it comes to your sexual purity, it should look different than other people. That we submit to each other, that we honor each other out of reverence for Christ. Relationships are a reflection of your reverence. Relationships are a reflection of your reverence. If I don't think good things about God, I'm not going to respect you. If, if I'm not honoring God in my personal life, it's going to flow out into my relationship with you. It's just a matter of time. You might think that you can go do whatever you want with God, but it's going to trickle down into everything else at some point. And and this is why I think it's so important to not leave you with eight tips on dating. I I was tempted. This is one of those things I was telling Tyler before, and I was like, we we can talk about this, we can talk about that. I don't want you leaving with a a notebook full of things and you don't know Jesus. I want you, we tell tell our our little boys, we've got a a boy who's almost four, and he's always asking questions about what I I do at church. And uh, we always, you know, on Tuesday nights, I get to tell people about Jesus, and I just had this kind of tension in my heart that I was planning on telling you, and let me give you Jared's eight good steps on dating. And I was like, I don't want to do that and leave you not understanding Jesus. Because I think if we know Jesus and he's impacting our lives, our relationships with people are going to change. If Jesus is impacting us at a deep level, it's going to change the way that we impact other people, that our relationships are a reflection of our reverence. Okay, we're going to talk about a couple of things, and there are some words that might be some, some, some hot issues with some people. And I want you to just stick with me to the end, okay? Just, can you promise that? You're already here. You've already sat through like 20 minutes of me rambling about stuff, so we'll just keep going. Ephesians 5, verse 22. It starts with wives. 
This is what it says. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. If you're taking notes, underline, write out that word, submit. That's an important word. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And here's what's important there. I think we live in a culture that says all submitting is bad, right? Like, I don't want to submit to anybody. Like, I'll submit to my boss when I need to, but other than that, I want to, I want to go maverick. I want to fly solo. I want to do what I, you don't want to submit to anybody, Submitting is putting yourself under their authority, their leadership. When I think of the word submit, I think about like MMA, UFC dudes that are like choking each other out. And when you you tap out, that's submitting. That's the picture that I have in my mind. You strong-armed me into this, so I guess I'll do it. But this is a different type of thing. And this is the, the analogy that he makes. He says, as to the Lord. And this is what's so important. My wife is great at submitting. But my wife is great at submitting, not because I'm an incredible husband, because she does it as to the Lord. This is the same idea as that verse in 1 Corinthians that says, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that says, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. It's the same idea. Do it as unto the Lord. My wife honors me and honors God when she submits to me and says, I'm doing this for God even when you miss the mark. I'm going to miss the mark. I'm broken. I'm not perfect. I know it's a surprise. I'm not perfect. So when my wife submits to me in, in, in my, our marriage, she's honoring God in it because she, she's doing it as unto the Lord. She'd be a fool if she stepped up and said, I'm going to step, everything Jared does, I'm in on. Like, that would lead her down some crazy paths that probably would be some places that she needs to go talk to a counselor for. And she, she anyway, she does it as unto the Lord. And that's what makes this worthy. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Let me tell you, when, when, when my brain, when my head, when my mind tells me that something, happen, that something needs to happen for my body, I do it. That the picture here is Christ and the church. And it's not the church building. It's not 900 North Eastgate. It's the people that he came to save, that he loved so deeply. So when he's telling these, this people in Ephesus, hey, the, the picture here is, wives, you submit just like the church, the people, the group submits to God. They would have gone, oh, okay, we get that. It wasn't the idea of, hey, male, female, you just lay down in front of him when he wants his feet washed, when you want him rub, you just do whatever you want. No, 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 that, that's not, it's follow me as I follow Christ. That Christ laid down his life for the church. We'll read that in a second. I'm going to read verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also, also wives should submit to everything to their husbands. I, I would argue that this second part is probably more difficult. There's a, there's a, a greater degree of difficulty to it than submission. Because if you've had a good boss, man, I'll, that's great. I'll do whatever you say. But if you had a bad boss, I'm not going to submit to you. You don't do what you say you're going to do. You, you're dishonest. You're tough to follow. But if it's a good boss, if it's someone who has your best interests in mind, well, you, you'll submit to that all day long. Ephesians 5 verse 25 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Gave himself up for her. 
Like, let me remind you one of the most basic scriptures, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish or have, for have eternal life. The, the picture here is, hey, wives, submit to your husbands like the church does to Christ. Husbands, die for your wives. That's the standard. Sacrifice. If you take notes, write down the word sacrifice. That we have the opportunity within marriage to not just have an agreement, not just have an arrangement. Hey, as long as you do X, Y, and Z, I'll, I'll hold up my end of the deal. I'll go to work. I'll provide. You keep the house clean. You keep the kid. This agreement is I'll sacrifice. You submit. And we'll reflect Christ to the people around us. There's a lot at stake when it comes to marriage. That Jesus' picture of death on a cross is him laying down his life for his bride. I was reminded this week of, uh, in 2012, there was a shooting in a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado. A, a guy walked in with an assault rifle and some other guns and I mean, you could hear it in, in other movie theaters. And when he came into one movie theater, six guys who were not married, they were dating girls, taking them on dates, put their girlfriend on the ground and laid over the top of them. All those guys died as bullets peppered those seats. But their girlfriends lived. They laid down their life for the one that they loved. This is a picture. I should be sacrificing for Tyler. I should be laying down my life for her. And I think we have the propensity. I think, I think we, we've enjoyed Disney cartoons and princess stuff so much that like the idea of like, I'll die for you. is like pretty f- fun. We like that. But like, will I get off the couch for you is probably a little bit more of a daily thing. That's pretty important. Logan laughs because he knows what it looks like to be married. To go, hey, babe, you need anything, I'm in, but I'm going to leave for a while. Doesn't really say a whole lot. But to say, hey, what do you need? I got it. At the end of the day, we, like, we have two couches. We, we sit on our couches and, and we, we try to just veg out a little bit. And I enjoy that time. I have a certain blanket that I like to have on me. We keep our house cold. I like the, the ability to need a blanket. And I keep that blanket with me. Um, and Tyler has an incredible ability to like, as soon as I sit down and get comfortable, she's like, hey, would you mind grab, oh, sorry, I thought you were up. I'll get it. I'm like, let me, let me get that for you. Like me going and getting a glass of water, and I say that I don't do it half as much as I should, but me going to get a glass of water for her, me going to get one of the boys when they're, that's the sacrifice that I get to have. And you go, that, that's not that big of a deal. But it's that moment by moment laying down my life for her that's a picture of Jesus loving the church that I think we belittle too often. And I think we don't make it as obvious as it should. Because Christ laid his life down for me, it's my joy to lay my, my life down for, for Tyler. That we see sacrifice and submission. Ephesians 5, 26 and 27 he says that he, and this is, this is talking about the husband, this is talking about Christ towards the church, that he might sanctify her. To sanctify is to become more like Christ. 
That's all that big word means. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Can I tell you one of the beautiful things that Christ does for us We all have something that we're not proud of. We all have something that we're carrying, some baggage. But when Christ comes into your life, he puts on his goodness over you. So that you're seen by God the Father without blemish, without spot. You never deserved it. That's what God is willing to do for you. I'm I'm just going to ask, do you have that? Has God done that in your life? Has he changed you in that way? That if you were standing at the gate of heaven and someone asked you, hey, why should I let you in? You'd say, it's because of Jesus covering me. There's nothing that I could have done. It's all him, 100%, all the way. Have you done that? He has that picture that Christ sanctifies the church. Man, to be married is to change. I, I know the idea of like a girl dating a guy. Well, he, he, he does this. It's not really my favorite thing. I'm going to try to change him. I think if he would just hang out with my friends a little bit more than his friends, things would really kind of come around and, and he would change in this way that I want him to. And, and really, we enter into marriage, we enter into relationships going, listen, I like the way that I am. If you could change around what I like to do, that would be best case scenario. I would be fine with that. But to be married is to help someone take steps towards Christ. It may not be leaps and bounds. It may not be, I get to lay down my life for you. But it might be just a step today. And it might be a little baby step tomorrow. And you might have tried something the next day and it, it didn't go well, but there was a little step you didn't see. That one of the joys of marriage is that you have the opportunity of someone that lives with such closeness and intimacy to you, they see all those ugly sides of you that nobody else sees. There's not a whole lot of hiding things in marriage. And I say that with a double-edged sword. It's a great thing and it's a terrible thing. I wish there were things that, when I have a bad attitude, when I come home upset, I wish Tyler didn't have to see those things, but she helps me see Christ better. That we have the opportunity for sanctification in marriage. Ephesians 5, 28 through 30. In the same way, husbands love their wives as their own bodies. Man, when I'm hungry, it does not take me long to find something to eat. Amen? It's saying, hey, husbands, love your wives like they are your own body. Go ahead and move. Go ahead and do something. Go ahead and act like your wife said she needed that. Go ahead and honor that request, even when you don't understand it. And honor your wife in that. Love your wives as your own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it, cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. I mean, the idea there is that Christ is the head of the church, we are members of the church, and he loves us in a way that even when we don't understand it, and we read something in God's word and we go, okay, I've never really dealt with that before. I don't understand why you're asking me to give and tithe and sacrifice my time and bring people into my life and community in a way that I've never done before. And tell other people about him. I don't get this. 
He has a way of doing that in a way that's saying, hey, I'm the head, you're the body. What I want for you is what's best for you. That's where you're going to flourish. That's where you're going to grow. That's where things are going to be absolutely best for you. And then really it's the word serve. If you're taking notes, that's the word serve. So we should have four words. I'm going to repeat them. Submission, sacrifice, sanctification, and service. And the picture that kept coming to my mind was that these were the four pillars that hold up the canopy of marriage, that sex is safe underneath, that sex is best underneath. Submission, service, sanctification, sacrifice. See, those are things that we want to justify and say, hey, I've got some of those things outside of marriage. But listen to verse 31, he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and become one flesh. This is God's design for sex. He starts it with the word therefore. When you read the word therefore in the Bible, you go back and see what it's there for. He lays out the whole premise. This is my design for sex. This is what I want for you. This is the way it's going to work the absolute best. But we want to start to chip away at it and go, well, I've already gone too far with this guy. What should I do? Well, it's easier to just go ahead and keep living with him. Well, I like getting drunk at parties and sex is just part of that, so why? Well, I'm addicted to pornography at this point and I'm not really sure how that's going to change things. It doesn't really impact anybody but myself. I want to point you to a couple of things, a contrast that I see in the Bible. We do see a pretty clear picture of sex inside of marriage and sex outside of marriage in the Bible. Sex inside of marriage. In Genesis 1.28, he says, be fruitful and multiply. That's some positive language towards you and your spouse. It says it here in Ephesians and again in Genesis 2.24, Old and New Testament, to become one flesh. That's some, some good language on what your life should look like with your married spouse. And one of my favorites, again, in one of Paul's letters, it says, and this is hilarious to me, but I love it. It says, hey, don't stop having sex with your spouse for a season of time unless it's so that you pray more. That's awesome. As a married man, that's incredible. I love that. That's great. Let me point you to what the Bible says about sex outside of marriage. It says in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. Run from it. Don't toe the line. Don't see how close you can get. Don't flirt with it. God's plan for any amount of sexual satisfaction is in marriage. That's the standard. It's tough. I understand that. But this is God's plan for marriage. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. I'm going to read this one slow for myself. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Pretty clear terms. Here's the thing. We have an incredible opportunity when it comes to relationships, when it comes to sex, when it comes to I mean, this is a tough thing because this goes against what our culture believes about sex. But in Ephesians 5, 32, to finish this off, this is what he says. He says, this mystery is profound. 
And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church, that marriage has this parallel. Man, I've designed those four pillars. I've designed that commitment so that sex would be good and safe and pleasurable, all the things that it should be in marriage. And we have the opportunity to point to Christ with that area of our lives. And this is something I feel like everyone in here has the ability to just say, God, I want to honor you in this. Whether it's something that you've done in the past and you're living with regret and you're saying, man, I wish that this wasn't part of my story. That David in Psalm 51 said, hey, I'm gonna turn and show that, man, God loves me. He forgave me. He'll heal me and he'll grow me. And now I can turn to other people and say, look at what God is willing to do in my life, in your life. There's no shame at the foot of the cross. Will you decide in your mind, in your heart, in your boundaries, in your choices to honor God? And maybe it's not a relationships thing with you. Maybe it's with another area, your money, your words, your actions, your pride, your thought life. The way that you treat your family, your integrity, that we have the opportunity as Christians and people that call Christ our Lord and the person who gets to tell us what's most important, to deny what culture tells us is the easiest, best, hey, look out for yourself, whatever you decide is best and go, no, there's a better way to live. And it's Jesus. And we have a picture here of Christ laying down his life. Not coming at you heavy handed, not saying, hey, you did something wrong and I'm, until you can make it right. No, he forgives you. He grows you. And then he changes your story into something that you can tell other people, man, I struggled with this. But God, who's rich in mercy because of the wonderful love that he loves us with, I'm made alive together with him. Is that your story? Have you been made alive with Christ? Has your life been changed by him? Are you just looking for some tips? Are you looking for the easy way out? Are you looking for the way to maximize what you see as what your time on this earth? Would you bow your heads? Thank mm-hmm. you.